The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to This is Catholicism on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Jason Guardiano, and I'm joined by His Excellency, Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Your Excellency, thank you for joining us, and welcome back. I'm sure our listeners have missed this show since our Holy Week and Easter break. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, we were real busy during those times. Restoration Radio is pleased to present This is Catholicism, free of charge to our listeners by the generous sponsorship of Australian Catholic Mission, who hope that listeners will spare a prayer or two for vocations in the growth of the One True Church in Australia. Restoration Radio episodes are syndicated on iTunes and Stitcher. If you're listening to our content on, in iTunes or Stitcher, please be sure to leave us ratings and reviews. This will help those who are searching for truly Catholic programming to more easily find our content. You may find the links to these two syndicates on our homepage. This is Catholicism, the Catechism Show, is using the text, A Complete Catechism of the Catholic Religion by Father Joseph de Harba, S.J., and is available in the public domain as a PDF, and used and reprint copies are still available. More information is in the show notes. In this episode, we continue with the final part of Part 1 on Faith, Tradition, Questions 34 to 40, and Qualities of Faith, Questions 41 to 55. Question 34, is it enough to believe only those doctrines which are contained in the Holy Scripture? Uh, The answer is no, because there are two separate sources of revelation. One is sacred scripture, the other is tradition. And they are, uh, sacred scripture is the written word of God inspired by the Holy Ghost, and tradition is the unwritten word of God that was handed over, the word tradition means to hand over, handed over to the apostles and from the apostles to uh, the church, uh, you know, their their successors, and uh, comes down to us through the magisterium of the Catholic Church. Uh, we can find sources of tradition by the um, attestation of the fathers, usually. But there are other sources, too, the sacred liturgy and, and many, many other ways in which to see a tradition. Uh, so there are many things contained in tradition which are not contained in sacred scripture. Uh, the uh, the reason for this is that the primary way in which the church teaches is by preaching. Uh, there were no scriptures for the first perhaps ten or fifteen years, and the first ones were the epistles of Saint Paul. Uh, that those are the first scriptures in the New Testament, uh, and so the, the the church had no scriptures to hand to anybody for quite a while. 
Uh, and so the um, p- preaching the gospel uh, is the way primarily that the church teaches, and therefore a tradition will contain everything that is uh, all of the dogmas of the Catholic Church, because it is the principal means in which the, the Catholic Church teaches. Uh, whereas Scripture will not necessarily contain everything that Christ said. Uh, it will uh, it certainly has the basis for all of the dogmas, but sometimes only implicitly. Like, uh, for example, in the case of the Immaculate Conception, the only scriptural basis for the Immaculate Conception is what the angel said to Our Lady, full of grace whereas most of the attestation for that doctrine comes from tradition, what the Fathers said and uh, the teaching of the Church and so forth. So so tradition is really the main source of the Church's teaching. Uh, and uh, furthermore, tradition is, is the guarantee of Scripture. In this sense, I could take the Los Angeles telephone book and say, this is sacred Scripture, now contradict me. You know, I could, uh, how do we know that sacred scripture? How do we know who wrote those things? How do we know the, uh, that these are the inspired books? How do we know that the content of those inspired books is indeed the inspired text? Uh, as, as I said, I, I could claim a, you know, a telephone book is sacred scripture, and the Protestants have no answer for that, because the only thing you can answer is, well, these are the received books. These are the traditional books, and they have come down to us through the very careful protection of the Church. And that means they have been handed over by the Church to the faithful. That's a tradition. And in that sense, tradition and Scripture are, are you know, of course, very related, and that is that uh, Scripture relies on tradition as a testimony of its authenticity. Uh, and um, so it, Protestants are eventually obliged to uh, admit tradition in the uh, uh, in authenticating their scriptures, <laughs> but they don't see tradition the way we see it, as a, a sacred a source of revelation. And, uh, I mean, that gets the Protestant into trouble, because if he doesn't see sacred tradition as a source of revelation, as something revealed, and if he does not see the approval of the Church as something that comes from God, then his uh, scriptures are based on human testimony, purely human testimony, for their authenticity. And so it gets down to the Los Angeles telephone book again. They, <laughs> no one, if it's purely human testimony, that means you have a human link in your revelation chain. And, of course, the chain is, is as strong as its weakest link, uh, and therefore you have human testimony that, that makes is, is the source of your belief, uh, and that's very bad, obviously, because your belief must be based on the authority of God revealing. So that's why Scripture and tradition are two different sources of revelation, and at the same time uh, they... Uh, they they contain, of course, very similar things and the same things. And uh, and but tradition is is the uh, uh, is the way of authenticating sacred scripture. And uh, both are given to us and protected by the Catholic Church. Well, 
sacred tradition is revelations. The Catholic Church does not manufacture revelation. The Catholic Church is the custodian of revelation. Right? It, 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 it holds it and it proposes it. But it doesn't manufacture it. Revelation is from God. So sacred tradition is from God. In other words, the doctrines contained in the sacred traditions of the Catholic Church are from God, but the Church infallibly preserves it and proposes it. That's a very important distinction to make. See, if you do not have a divinely assisted Church proposing uh, the sacred tradition infallibly, then, as I said, you end up with a human link in your revelation chain. Uh, because that means somewhere or other, somebody said, oh, I think this is an inspired book. Some ordinary human being without any assistance from God said, I think this is an inspired book. <laughs> and his, as we used to say in New York growing up in the 50s, that in 15 cents will get you on the subway. That's what it cost years ago. Uh, that is, you know, it's of no value in the order of belief, because belief relies on the authority of God revealing. So the Protestants have a major problem with that. For You know, who handed them their Bibles? Well, their minister did, you know, and where did he get it from? And how do we know those are the right books? How do we know that those are the right texts? And it's all based on basically human testimony. There's no divine link. There's no assisted church. See, for them, they would have to see Christ ascending into heaven, leaving behind a pile of Bibles. And the uh, apostles go and pick up the pile of Bibles and then go around the world uh, giving Bibles to people and telling them to interpret them on their own. That's the Protestant model. And, of course, it's absurd. <laughs> there was no such thing as Bibles in those days. There wasn't anything written down. And uh, what they did is they went and preached the Holy Gospel. And uh, and they did not tell people to, to interpret uh, anything on their own, but St. Peter actually warned people to not interpret things on their own that they might read in the epistles of St. Paul, because they're difficult, <laughs> and that people get themselves messed up by interpreting things on their own. That's in St. Peter's writings. So so the, the, the Catholic system of both Scripture and tradition, which is you know, obvious from, from things that are contained even in Scripture itself, uh, is, um, is correct. And, and it observes, the it keeps intact the motive of divine revelation as far as what we believe. And as you just spoke about, Your Excellency, question number number 35 is, have not then the apostles written all that Jesus Christ has taught? No, they haven't. St. John is explicit in saying that our Lord did many things that are not written in this book. Um, and uh, And he said in another place, if we wrote down everything, the world could not hold all the books that would have to be written. So many things uh, he said and did. Uh, so we're looking in the Holy Gospels uh, at a you know a very short narration of our Lord's life, which yeah, you can read the Gospel, the whole one of those Gospels, maybe in an hour or less, and and so they're very very condensed. 
uh, piecemeal. Uh, they, uh, they, they, you can tell that they're describing only certain select things uh, just from comparing the four of them. And uh, like St. John describes seven miracles, that's all. He has seven miracles, and he is concentrating on a single point, and that is the divinity of Christ. Uh, Saint um, uh, St. Matthew is concentrating on the uh, most of the statements of our Lord. He gives a lot of talks or speeches of our Lord, and uh, he, he, is, uh, he gives uh, details concerning doctrine and living correctly. Uh, and uh, so... Each each evangelist has his own uh, agenda, you might say, in in writing the gospel. So, uh, but they're very condensed. I mean, you, how could you write the the gospel? How could you write a a, a biography of someone who, uh, who said and did the things that our Lord said and did? Who who is uh, the God Man, and who was on Earth for three years in his public life, and where the, you know there's even some revelation concerning his infant life, uh, that he was. Uh, how could you put that in in the few pages that you find the, the gospel uh, you know, that you find in the gospels? Uh, so we know that there are many many other things. Uh, we know that one of the epistles of Saint Paul is lost, for example. We don't have it. What did he say in there? That's revelation. We know from the gospels that there are passages or books in the Old Testament that we don't have, because they're quoted. So, yes, another thing is that things disappear. You know, uh, Muslims burn down libraries. <laughs> things disappear. And they are subject to, uh, you know, the corruption of paper and things like that. So, uh, so th- what the, the, the guarantee of our, of our, Doctrine is the divinely assisted church. See, so the the, uh, the church has access to everything that is necessary for for promulgating the doctrines that that God wills for for the salvation of His people. Question thirty six: Why is the unwritten doctrine of the apostles called tradition? Because trado uh, tradere in Latin means to hand over, and so, so traditio or tradition means the handing over, uh, handing down. And uh, that means that the apostles uh, preached certain things, talked about certain things, and that these things were repeated one to another, and in most cases written down by the fathers or appearing in the sacred liturgy uh, or the sacred uh, ancient customs of the church. Uh, the sacred liturgy is a source of, of apostolic doctrine. If something is uh, uh, is known to go back to the time of the apostles, so if the church has always said something or always always celebrated a certain feast, for example, uh, that is a sign of apostolic doctrine. Uh, so uh, the uh, so that that's why it's called tradition is that it's handed over, it's orally handed over. It may be written down later. Usually, it is. Uh, it doesn't have to be, but in most cases, it is. So the uh, whenever uh, the, the church is looking to define a dogma, to see if it is definable, it will look not only in sacred scripture, but also in the writings of the fathers, and in the practices of the Catholic Church, the devotions of the Catholic Church, because these are all signs of sacred tradition. Question 37. 
Where are the teachings of tradition contained? Uh, this is, uh, uh, I've already answered this to a certain extent. Uh, they're uh, contained in the decrees of the council. So the the uh, the church is the custodian of tradition, just that it, as it is the custodian of sacred scripture. Uh, the writings of the Holy Fathers, uh, so St. John Chrysostom, St. Augustine, um, St. Basil, St. Athanasius, uh, all of the Holy Fathers of the Church. So that refers to the early fathers, and when you say Holy Father, that doesn't mean the Pope in this case, but the early fathers of the Church who, who wrote many things against heretics. I uh, say after the Church got through all of the persecution from without, that is, from the Romans, uh, it had to face a persecution sort of from within, that is, its own children defecting into heresy. And so there was a great age of responding to the heretics from about, well, let's say uh, 325 with Arius all the way through to, uh, oh, probably the, the, the middle of the 500s. Uh, uh, pro very prolific writing on the part of very, very intelligent, uh, educated, and saintly men, the doctors and fathers of the church. Uh, and so it's a rich treasure there. And they, they make reference to many things. Uh, that uh, And if they all agree, or at least there is a, a, a strong majority that agrees concerning uh, a certain doctrine, and they propose it as something divinely revealed, in other words, they hold it as a, as a doctrine of faith, that is a sign that it is of apostolic tradition, if it's not contained in sacred scripture. Uh, and uh, if they merely express opinions about things, that, that's then, you know, as they say, in my opinion, this is true or that, then that's, uh, it's not a sign of, uh, of apostolic tradition and something that comes from our Lord but it is merely their theological opinion. So the Church has to go in and make a judgment concerning those things. So, uh, and then you find it in the Acts of the Holy See, everything that the uh, Catholic Church uh, proposes for belief, and in the uh, uh, words and usages of the sacred liturgy, as I said before, especially with the the observance of certain feasts. For example, the Immaculate Conception was observed in many, many places, uh, and um, already the bishops of the United States, before the definition, that is in the 18... Um, uh, the definition was in 1854, so already before the definition, the bishops of the United States uh, said that the, uh, uh, the Immaculate Conception is the patroness of this country. So there was a, uh, a rise in interest in the definition from below. It was not uh, something that Pius IX got into his head to do one day, although he had a great devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, but th there was a, a pressure from below to define this doctrine. And uh, and most of the attestation for the doctrine came from sacred tr tradition. Just that one phrase from sacred scripture. But most of it came from sacred tradition. Question 38. What value must be placed on tradition? Tradition has the same value as the written word of God. They are the same because they both come from the same God. Uh, sacred scripture is the inspired word of God. Tradition is the word of God handed down. So that's why canon law says that we must believe 
what the Church proposes in her magisterium, whether it is the written word of God, uh, in other words, what she's proposing, uh, whether it is the written word of God or the handed down word of God. Either one, uh, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. It's just a different way of saying it and a different way of holding on to it. That's all. So it has the same authority and value. And related, question 39, why must we believe tradition as well as the Holy Scripture? Uh, for the obvious reason that it is revealed by God. It is revelation from God. So whatever authority sacred Scripture has, tradition has the same. Question 40, from whom are we to learn the true meaning of tradition? From the Catholic Church. Again, the Catholic Church is the divinely assisted institution. So she is the proprietor and custodian of the sources of revelation. They are handed over to the Church, those, be, those sources of revelation being sacred scripture and tradition. And uh, God has given her the power to teach in his name. Uh, Behold, I am with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. He who hears you hears me. And so the Catholic Church has the... Uh, and only the Catholic Church has the power to interpret correctly what is contained in sacred scripture and what is contained in tradition. So it all boils down to uh, the assistance given by God to the institution of the Catholic Church. That is key. And that's uh, what the Protestants have always opposed. And and that's what that's the main difference between Protestantism and Catholicism is the hierarchy of the Catholic Church and their ability uh, and their mission to represent God in the essential uh, functions of teaching, ruling, and sanctifying. We'd like to remind you that you're listening to This is Catholicism on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Jason Gordiano, and I've been joined by His Excellency, Bishop Donald Sanborn, and today we've been discussing tradition. We want to remind you that This is Catholicism is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. Your Excellency, now we move to Section 6, Qualities of Faith. Uh, Question 41. What must be the qualities of our faith? Well, the answer in the Catechism is that there are four. It must be universal, it must be firm, it must be lively, and it must be constant. So we need to address each one of those. So we go to number 42. When is our faith universal? The universality of the faith means that we must assent to all of the truths that are proposed by the Catholic Church for belief. Uh, Everything that that is contained in sacred scripture, everything that is contained in Revelation, the reason why it must be everything is that the motive of belief is the authority of God revealing. So if you make one exception, then you are destroying the whole motive of belief. Then you're saying implicitly, well, God could make a mistake here, uh, and uh, he must uh, he must be wrong here. Uh, and Therefore, the whole it just blows up the whole balloon. It's it's just like a balloon must be integral in order that it it be a balloon, and just as a, a single uh, pinprick will blow the whole thing up, 
so also in order that the faith truly be the faith, it has to be integral. That means universal. It has to ascend to everything that God has said and which is proposed by the Catholic Church for belief. So, uh, so a heretic, for example, in most cases believes a great deal of what the Church teaches, but he makes an exception of certain things, and that ruins his virtue of faith, because he's implicitly saying that, that God has lied, or he doesn't know what he's talking about, or he prefers his own judgment to the, the judgment of God and of the Church. So that, that's what universality means. Number 43, then, is, is then no one at liberty to admit and believe only some points of the Christian faith? The answer is no. Uh, the, uh, for, for the reasons that I said, is that it's all based on a single motive. You believe God in everything. <clears throat> and it, it, the Catechism gives certain examples. Our Lord said, Preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth not shall be condemned. That's very strong. That there is a law of faith. If you disobey that law of faith, you will be condemned. That's uh, in St. Mark. And he says, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So there is, he, he commands a universality of belief there. And a universality of uh, observing the laws of the church. And uh, in St. John we read, Whoever revolteth and continueth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. It's in one of his epistles. So he who, who rebels against the, the teaching of sacred scripture or tradition, as it is proposed by the church, uh, is, is an enemy of God. Uh, so, so heresy, the very term heresy means selection or choice. And uh, it, it means that those who are heretics choose certain doctrines to believe and reject others. So Martin Luther, for example, accepted a lot of Catholic doctrines, but the, the motive of his acceptance was what he thought was right and, and what he thought the Holy Ghost was telling him to think. So whereas Luther got rid of one pope, he made, you know, many thousands of popes by giving them the Bible and telling them to, to interpret it for themselves. <laughs> Before Luther, we had only one pope. <laughs> In other words, he assigns to the individual believer the very authority that he denies to the pope. So that brings us to question number 44. When is our faith firm? And that means that we must believe without any doubt at all. So heresy, you fall into the sin of heresy if you doubt or deny. So you don't have to be a firm denier. It's sufficient merely to call into doubt the truths of the faith, even a single truth of the faith. Now here it's important to recall the principle that a thousand questions do not equal one doubt. Right, so you might come across something in sacred scripture and and say, "Gee, I don't understand that. That you know doesn't make sense to me." That's not a doubt yet. That's a question, and you have to have the humility to say, "Well, maybe there's something I don't understand, and I have to look this up or ask somebody that might know." Uh, but I don't understand this. This this is this is difficult. A difficult passage for me. That happens to everybody, uh, and. 
so that's just a question. A doubt is uh, a state of mind in which your mind cannot assent either yes or no, but is sort of stuck in the middle between two uh, contradictory propositions. So, um, you know, A is B or A is not B. The mind cannot swing to one or the other, but remains in neutral between the two. That is a doubt. It's stuck, like stuck in the mud. Uh, and, and if you arrive at that point with regard to the truth of the faith, you are already a heretic. The reason being that you have lost, again, the motive. The motive is the authority of God revealing. The authority of God revealing could never produce doubt. It can only produce absolute certitude. There's no other greater certitude to have than the word of God concerning something. So, uh, the, so doubt is a, a faith destroyer. Uh, and uh, so that, that you're you're guilty of that. So you, our faith must be firm, uh, uh, but uh, you should not think that because you have a question or something is bothering you, that uh, that you have fallen into doubt. So if if somebody says, you know, I'm not sure if God exists or something like that, that that's a heresy. That's a heresy. Or I, you know, how can we be sure about this, that, or the other thing? That's somebody who is already a heretic. But if he says, I don't understand something, could somebody explain it to me? Uh, that's uh, altogether different. Question 45. When is our faith lively? Faith is alive when it is attached to the virtue of charity. Charity is love of God above all things. It is a supernatural virtue, just as faith is. That means it is uh, infused by God into the soul, uh, and it is infused at baptism, and it remains in the soul in principle forever until the soul should drive it out by means of mortal sin. So when charity is in the soul, faith is alive. That is, it is producing effects and actions uh, which are salvific, that is, acts of faith and so forth. When charity fails through mortal sin, faith remains in the soul, but it is dead. That is, it is incapable of producing salvific acts, meritorious acts, because the, it's just like a dead body. You know, there's, it, it's, uh, uh, the, we still believe, we still believe everything, we can recite the credo with, with sincerity, uh, so people who still have the faith, even though they're in, in the state of mortal sin, are still members of the Catholic Church. They are, in that sense, still attached to Christ as head of the Church. They do not lose their membership in the Church. They still retain a, a, a principle of resuscitation, and that is that they still have a dead faith. And uh, if they repent of their sins, uh, they can uh, revive this faith and... and uh, if they go to confession, of course, and they can revive this faith. Uh, so it's still a, a, a spark in them, nonetheless, of returning to God. Uh, now, Ratzinger said that, that uh, faith without 
uh, love of God is no faith at all, and that's actually a Lutheran heresy. Uh, to, to and the Council of Trent condemned that. The Council of Trent was very explicit about um, saying that there is so, such a thing as a dead faith. But in order for uh, uh, faith to to produce its uh, meritorious acts, uh, and uh, it has to be enlivened by charity. Uh, charity, it's. Um, Oh, if you think of an airplane, uh, all of the systems of the airplane run off the engines. So charity or the engines, it's running everything in the airplane. Those engines shut down, <laughs> the lights go out, the, everything shuts down if those engines go down, uh, even though they're still there. <laughs> but they don't produce what they're supposed to produce. And, and uh, so... Um, the same is true of charity. It runs the whole spiritual life. If it disappears, uh, yes, you still have uh, you have dead hope, you have dead faith, uh, but it has th- those virtues have no life in them. They have no principle of of, uh, of activity in them. Uh, they they still they still adhere to the truth of the faith. The dead hope still hopes uh, in its own way. But the uh, it, there's it, it is without a life. That is, there is uh, for as long as as charity is absent, uh, the uh, there is no um, there's no real hope of eternal salvation. Uh, I mean, the only way that they can hope for eternal salvation is if they repent. The only way that they can hope that their faith will save them is if they repent of their sins. But but the dead faith and the dead hope are not going to do anything for them in the order of salvation. So that's what that means, is uh, that the faith has to be lively, that is, alive. It has to uh, be on fire, so to speak, uh, by charity. Moving along to question 47. 46 was on a dead faith. 47, when is our faith constant? Our faith is constant when we are ready to lose all, even our life, rather than fall away from it. So, uh, as I've said in sermons many times, the price of supernatural truth is death. Uh, we go through this, the, the various uh, supermarkets or department stores, and if we see something we like, we look at the price tag. And, well, if you pick up supernatural truth, revelation from God, the Catholic faith, there's going to be a price tag on it. And that price tag is death. Right? <laughs> Skull and crossbow. And the reason I say that is that God can, if he wants, require us uh, uh, to make the profession of faith at the cost of our lives. Uh, this, that's a martyr. Someone who uh, who witnesses, and the word martyr means witness, witnesses to the truth of the Catholic faith which, with the highest price, and that is his own life. And that's considered a victory because he has been victorious over all of the allurements of the earth. He has loved God perfectly and believed in God perfectly, so much so that he is free from any of the allurements of the earth. And that is the victory, to belong to God and not to the earth, and to, to uh, 
uh, be united to God, that, that the things of God and eternal salvation are more important than the things of the earth, including your own life. That is the victory of the cross. And the martyrs uh, achieve that victory perfectly, and that's why they're seen holding the palm of victory and crowned with the crown of victory. Uh, that is the, the greatest possible participation in the passion of Christ and is, is, the, is most pleasing to God, that we give up our lives in order to attest to the truth of the Catholic faith. Because you really have to believe, if somebody says, I'm going to chop your head off, unless you deny the faith, you have to dig down deep into your soul and really believe and say, I do believe all of these invisible things, these things that have been told to me that I cannot see and cannot touch, but I, I say that they are true and that they are real, and I, I hope for eternal salvation. I believe in the promises of Christ. Those, those are all acts which a lively faith is going to produce in someone, and, and that is the, the constancy of it. Uh, so the, um, uh, and the Church uh, thrives on that. Now, in most cases, God does not require the ultimate price. But he always requires us to pay some price for our faith. Always. We never go through life without paying some price, giving something up for our faith. And many times I've seen it happen where people are living perfectly nice lives from the point of view of the world. Then they become Catholics and everything blows up. <laughs> Just... <laughs> They or they, you know, become fervent Catholics. They they rediscover their faith, or, and then their whole lives blow up, and and they are faced with great crosses. Uh, and, and God will always demand a certain amount of crosses from us, and will always demand tests of faith, as he as he demanded of Abraham. Uh, he, we have to give him that. We have to show him in this life that he is more important to us than the things of the earth. Uh, but most of the time he does not require the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, but he will require some sacrifice. Question 48. What leads people to fall away from their faith? Well, the main thing is pride. In order for someone to make an act of faith, he must have humility. That is, and uh, the humility of his intellect, which is the hardest humility of all to have. Uh, it is, the intellect is the highest faculty of the soul. And therefore, when pride... Uh, infects it. Uh, we want to be uh, uh, completely independent of the revelation of God. We want to be even independent of natural truths. We want to set ourselves up as the arbiter of what we should think and believe, and uh, no one is going to tell us what to think. That's, that's pride in the intellect. Uh, free thinking, what is commonly known as free thinking, uh, that is the spirit of the age. Uh, rationalism, uh, unless I can figure it out, it can't be true. Uh, that would be like saying, well, because I can't stare at the sun, the sun must not be there. Uh, because I cannot comprehend the light of the sun, which is an absurdity. Uh, but uh, a lot of people believe that. See, no one will tell me what to think or do. No church is going to tell me what I should think. So that is the uh, the first thing. Uh, the second is the neglect of prayer. Uh, 
if you never water your garden, I can tell you what's going to happen to your garden. It's all going to die. And and the same is true of of our spiritual life. If we never pray, if we never go to God in prayer, our spiritual life is going to die. And we will fall away into... Um, when, when people stop praying, they become more and more interested in the things of this world, whether it's other human beings, whether it's material things, whether it's prestige and power. But things of this world, they become more and more interested in things of this world when they pray less. When they pray more, they become more and more detached from the things of this world and more and more attached to spiritual and invisible things. Uh, and so uh, neglect of prayer is a very common um, cause of that. And uh, another cause is worldliness and a wicked life. So if you're uh, wallowing in the world and wallowing in all sorts of lustful actions and and uh, pictures and, and movies and all, uh, if you lead a, a worldly and sinful life, uh, you will uh, tend to, uh, again, deny the existence of the invisible and supernatural world because you are so attached to the visible and natural world. If we do not live a truth, it generally disappears for us. Even if we might retain uh, some sort of theoretical attachment to it, uh, if, if, it, if we do not live it, we tend to deny it eventually. And those who live a world of uh, a life of worldliness uh, are setting themselves up for loss of faith. Um, and the the fourth is by reading irreligious books or books that contradict the faith, and that again uh, is a very very common reason. And we have to add to that all of the media today. You know, it used to be only books, and and you'd have to actually go to a bookstore, pick it up, and read it. Now, it's so easy between uh, everything that comes over the Internet and the television, radio, uh, and uh, it, it comes at us so easily uh, that uh, we have to be very careful of that, uh, that uh, we should not be reading things that could corrupt our faith. And that, that often proceeds from pride, where people say, well, this is not going to bother me. And while it does bother them, and, and they are they are corrupted, they read authors that are rationalistic or... Uh, we have to have the humility to realize that we can be badly influenced. So we can't set ourselves up as theologian judges uh, when, uh, in fact, we know very little. Uh, and and we can be badly influenced. Uh, we are weak beings, and and we we submit easily to to bad influences in, in all walks of life. Uh, we can go to a bad doctor. We don't, you know, we don't know that that he's telling us to do something wrong or that he's a quack. Very easily, we can be deceived and duped. Think of all the people that are duped every day by con men and scam artists. Yeah, every single day, probably thousands of people every day are, are duped out of money uh, because they're they are not uh, sufficiently intelligent or, or alert. To, to sense the, the scan artists. And some of those people are very professional at it. You know, they, they could even get somebody who, who's, who's very, very astute. And, and so, uh, you know, it's the same is true in, in the uh, questions of faith. 
that uh, and and there are many things in sacred scripture as i said which are difficult to understand so all it would take is you know some little spark of of a question or a little uh you know, we're, we're not sure about something and somebody could work on that that and make it a doubt very easily so reading modernist literature and and uh or or listening to uh like novastorto conservative uh shows uh, a famous one in Alabama for example uh is very <laughs> dangerous for the faithful because they see, oh, the nuns are all dressed up in nice, you know, ha- uh, habits, and the priests look so nice, and they're in their clericals, and and there's Latin, and I know a lot of people who listen to uh, EWTN, and it's loaded with modernism. Uh, it, it's it's a Vatican II thing, and and uh, it uh, you know it's something that should be avoided by the faithful, but they they get sucked into that. Uh, very easily, and and they could fall into heresy that way. Question forty nine: How do we especially show that our faith is firm and constant? Uh, that uh, we never deny it, uh, not even in appearance, but we must profess it uh, whenever necessary. So we should uh, not be afraid to profess our faith. And we do that commonly by saying grace before meals and after meals, too. Uh, We might pray before we drive or fly. Uh, We make the sign of the cross and pray. Uh, We should not be afraid to do that uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, we should not be ashamed of our Lord. Uh, And uh, we should not be ashamed to show that we are Catholics. Uh, Secondly, you never know... what good you're going to do, that somebody sees you pray, if they have the grace of God, they're going to be immediately drawn to that. If they have contempt for God, they will have contempt for you, but who cares? We're, we're meant to, to suffer persecution. Uh, so, so, but you never know the good that you do. Sometimes you, you, as I said, you may never know it, but you will have done some good to somebody. So we must always profess the faith and and call upon the graces of confirmation. The enemy of professing the faith is human respect. Very strong today because everyone is so secular that religion is is just considered, uh, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are you bringing religion into a public place? Why are you making the sign of the cross? Why are you praying? Uh, Why are you wearing that medal or... Uh, religion is scorned today. You're supposed to be uh, secular, and if you have any religion, you should keep it privately in your house. I mean, you shouldn't drag it out into the street. That's the mentality today. And uh, um, so we have to overcome that by professing it all the more, professing it quite boldly. (laughs) And just, uh, who cares, you know? Uh, the uh, it's pleasing to God, and, and it is displeasing to God to be ashamed of professing his name. And he says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the angels of God in heaven. Uh, and uh, um, before my, excuse me, before my father was in heaven. Uh, and uh, so that's a very, very stiff warning. And if we do not profess him here, uh, he will deny us. So question 50 was about the sign of the cross, a particular sign by which Catholics profess their faith. 
Question 51, why do we use the sign of the cross in order to profess our faith? Well, we use it uh, because, for a number of reasons. One, it, it shows the cross, that is the redemption, and it shows the Holy Trinity. So those are the two principal doctrines of our faith. Secondly, it is done only by Catholics uh, in the way that we do it. The Greek Orthodox uh, do the other shoulder first. The Catholics do the left shoulder first and then the right. The Greek Orthodox do the right and then the left. So if you make the sign of the cross with using the left first and then the right, uh, you are declaring to everyone that you're a Roman Catholic, which is a wonderful thing. Without saying a word, you're saying to everybody, I am a Roman Catholic. And so the sign of the cross is the easiest and simplest way St. Bernadette was very insistent that we should make the sign of the cross very carefully. That was one of her greatest counsels, and she always did make the sign of the cross very carefully. Uh, so uh, it is a, uh, a badge of our faith, and we should uh, not hesitate to make it. At the same time, you know, we have to avoid being ostentatious about our faith, where we do things uh, purposely merely to attract attention and to have people remark. And that, that is a disservice to the faith. Uh, and, uh, you know, in some cases that we call that the spirit of the devil, if it's bad enough, that the devil will actually use uh, those things uh, and those, the observances of those things for your own pride. You know, so people who might make big demonstrations of piety in front of a statue, like sighing and crying in front of a statue, and all. Many times they're doing that so that people will look at them, and it's actually a source of their pride. So we should not be ostentatious. Uh, we should not wear huge pectoral crosses around our necks and and say, "Look at me, you know, I'm." Uh, you know, <laughs> only bishops wear pectoral crosses, uh, but sometimes lay people do things that are ostentatious, and they shouldn't. Uh, they should be discreet, but at the same time, uh, they should never hesitate to profess their faith when the occasion arises. You know, it, that's a, a judgment of prudence in each case, but uh, you, know, there's a, there's a, you can go overboard a little bit too. Question 52. Whence comes the custom of making the sign of the cross? Uh, nobody knows. Uh, it, uh, it's not somebody that made it up at a certain point, and that's always a sign of an apostolic tradition, when it was always done, and no one ever mentions when it was started. That's a sign of an apostolic tradition. Question 53. When should we make the sign of the cross? Uh, various times. Whenever we pray, we should start by making the sign of the cross and finish by making the sign of the cross. When we take holy water, we make the sign of the cross. When we are undergoing temptation, we should make the sign of the cross. Um, uh, whenever we're blessed by a priest, we should make the sign of the cross. Uh, uh, the, uh, yes, before uh, an important occupation, like before we study, we should make the sign of the cross. It, it sanctifies what you do. And it's, it, that, that simple thing that takes really a few seconds makes a little prayer sanctifying and offering up what you're about to do and asking implicitly the help of God for what you're about to do. So it's a very pious thing to do and, and a very simple thing to do. Uh, and uh, the, uh, 
you know, any kind of danger or something. I remember it was out in California, Northern California, and there was a, a little earthquake, and, and uh, enough to knock me off a chair. I was standing on a chair, and I got knocked off. And there was a lady there, and she fell immediately on her knees and made the sign of the cross. Uh, and I was edified by that, that she was a very pious lady. She died years later after that. But a very pious lady, that, that, that was her first reaction was to kneel down and make the sign of the cross. Because, you know, when, when now you're from California. When that earthquake <laughs> comes, now I went through two of them in Northern California, uh, two significant ones. And uh, when it comes, I think the scariest thing about it is what else is coming. Is, is this is this it? Is this the the all we're getting, or is there some big thing that's going to hit afterwards? And uh, that that to me is perhaps the scariest part of the earthquake is is what is coming. And uh, the other part I think that is scary is the sound of the earth when that when that rumbling hits. It's a it's a sound that you can't even describe. Uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard it <laughs> living in Southern California. Yes. Although I think you're long overdue out there. <laughs> so. Yes, we're we're very due. <laughs> yes. So, uh, but that that's those are the times when we should make the sign of the cross. And now we'll move to question fifty-five. Mm-hmm. Why do we usually make the sign of the cross on our forehead, mouth, and heart at the reading of the gospel? Well, first of all, it's the custom of the church. It is done in the sacred liturgy. The priest does it. Uh, and the, the answer is clear in the book that God, through the merits of Christ crucified, may give us the grace to comprehend. So that's the head. Uh, and then profess it with our mouth. So we make the sign of the cross in our mouths. And then we love it with our heart. So that's um, the three ways in which we glorify God, is by the the intellect, that is faith, and then by preaching the gospel or, or professing, excuse me, pro professing it when necessary by by uh for example contradicting those who who deny the faith in front of us uh there are that we you know that is necessary to do at times uh the uh or saying um uh, for example the correcting somebody that might be using God's name in vain and depending on the circumstances again prudence determines all of those things but we have to open our mouths to profess the faith many times, and uh, we should never permit the faith to be contradicted in front of us. And the and then uh, love it in our hearts. We have to love our faith and love God. That's the principal thing: is to love God above all things. And uh, that's the, the the engines on the plane <laughs> so it keeps everything going. And uh, so we have to do that too. As we close out this episode, we've covered tradition. Uh, the qualities of faith, universal, firm, lively, constant, and uh, making the sign of the cross. And I want to thank His Excellency, Bishop Donald Sanborn, for his time and being with us on this episode. Is there anything else you would like to add in summary before we close out our episode, Your Excellency? Just the importance of the Catholic faith today. The, The faith is adherence to invisible things. And the the faith is attacked everywhere by rationalism, by modernism. It's the foundation of everything we do. If we lose contact with those invisible things of God that we adhere to by faith and assent to by faith, 
then everything falls down. There is no possibility of having charity, no possibility of having hope, no possibility of, of salvation without the faith. So the having the faith and strengthening the faith uh, by prayer and by reading good books and, and by professing the faith is very, very important today. Uh, the faith has been battered by the modern world, and we have to take the means to defend it and protect it in ourselves. Well, once again, Your Excellency, thank you for your time, and we'll talk to you again next month as we continue this series. God bless you. Thank you very much. Goodbye. We would again wish to thank the generous sponsorship of Australian Catholic Mission. If you have any questions for His Excellency or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at catechism at truerestoration.org, and we will pass along your questions or comments to His Excellency, and we would also take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us are strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Jason Gordiano. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.